you know, the service was so, going so great, and then Bill made that gaffe on that song. Did you guys all notice that? <laughs> I, I just want to make sure you notice that. I loved it. Yeah, Bill, the reason I point that out, I was losing it emotionally, so Bill's gaffe, it brought me right back, so I'm ready to go again. All things work to good. You, I'm sure you noticed as we read the uh, gospel accounts this morning, at least especially the first three, the accounts aren't the same. Uh, they're different, and there's variation within those different accounts. So if you read one gospel, you know, you've got uh, Mary Magdalene going to the tomb. And then if you read another one, you've got Mary and Mary. Hi, Alicia. Welcome. And if you read a third one, you've got Mary, Mary, and Salome. You know, you start asking yourself the question, okay, so who was there? Randall touched on this in Sunday school. I thought he was going to rob all my thunder this morning. (laughs) Going right up this line. Or, you know, one gospel account says when Mary goes, it's dark. And another says when they get there, it's light. And so you're scratching your head if you're reading these together thinking, okay, which was it? Was it dark or was it light? You've got uh, one angel in some gospel accounts. You've got two angels in another account. You've only got one author that mentions the earthquake at all. And, you know... Uh, critics make much of this. Um, you've got these varying accounts. They don't all say the same thing. And so you might be tempted to scratch your head or come to the conclusion that they're misstated, they're misspoken, they simply don't agree with each other, they're in contradiction with each other. You can, uh, if you want to, you can use a harmony of the gospel to do this, probably the easiest way. Uh, These are available online, or you can buy a book that has a harmony of the the entire Gospels. But it is possible. You can weave these stories together. So you can take, let's say if you start with Matthew, you can take the elements of Mark and Luke and John. You can put them all in there. You can weave all four Gospel accounts together and come up with a single cloth. That is, you can go point by point, and you can show how everything's possible. That is, that the, the accounts are not necessarily in conflict with each other. For instance, the fact that one gospel says there's one angel does not say there were not two. Uh, Mary, it may have been dark when she left and light when she got there. Uh, Some suggest Mary uh, was with the group of women that goes, but she saw the empty tomb, and at that point she runs away from the rest to go get John and Peter. Others suggest there were more than one group of women coming to the tomb. Do you see so... If you just hear this or if someone tells you there's contradictions in the resurrection story, if you, if you don't think very long about it or very deep, you might come to the same conclusion. There's no necessary contradiction in the stories. But what you've got are credible accounts because clearly, you guys know, if you're all on four corners and you see a wreck, for instance, and, and the police ask you to describe the wreck, you'll all describe it just a little bit differently because you all have a little different point of view, a little different vantage point. And, of course, with the gospel writers, they're all trying to do a little different thing when they tell their story. They're not contradicting accounts, but they all have a different reason for why they were written, and so they include different elements in that same story. But this is the thing at the end of the day. It's what they all include. That's the point. So at the end of the day, all the gospel writers make sure, if we, if we don't get anything else straight, they all agree on this point with no contradiction, no ambiguity, no confusion, 
We don't have to figure this one out. They all say that the tomb that had held Jesus' body the day before was empty and Jesus had risen physically from the grave. So if you want to, if it's a good exercise, if it's helpful for you, sometimes these things are for me, use a, a harmony. Look this up online. You can make all these details work, but don't miss the big point, which is Jesus was risen from the dead. That's the point. You know, if I was scripting this, this is the greatest event in the history of the world. The resurrection is. It's not the incarnation, as important as that was, as necessary, but it's the resurrection that's the key. If Jesus had been born into the world, but hadn't died for our sins or hadn't risen from the grave, we'd still be lost in our sins. It's the resurrection that all of our redemption hangs on. It's the most important event in history. If I was God and I was scripting this, Tanisha, I would have written it a little differently. So, for instance, if I was choosing the guys who are writing the story, you know, thinking of those conflicts where one person reads it and they tell another those stories are in conflict, I'd have made the stories a little smoother. That is, the stories would have hung together a little more easily. I wouldn't have to work to see how they could all uh, describe the same story with no conflict. I wouldn't make them exactly the same because then someone would say, well, you've just copied. I'd make them a little different, but not so different that they would invite the accusation that they're in conflict with one another. Another thing I would do is I would get an entirely different cast of characters. Uh, I would get people, but think about this. If I want someone to believe my story, I want sharp people. I want good-looking people. I want people that to the larger world around me would be credible witnesses. And that is definitely not how God scripted this most important of all historical events. And think of this just for a second. No one understood that Jesus, none of all his his supporters, these aren't his enemies, these are his supporters and his friends. These are the folks he shared his heart with. No one understands that Jesus was going to come back from the dead after that crucifixion. None of his supporters got that. As far as the disciples were concerned, they are simply trying to avoid Jesus' fate. They are not waiting for resurrection. They're hiding in Jerusalem, hoping to avoid the fate that their master has fallen into a couple days before. No one knows when they see the empty tomb. None of them know what that means. And no one in these stories believe the first accounts that they hear of the resurrection. None of them get it on the face of it. This is in spite of the fact that Jesus told them these things would happen. So passages like Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He'd be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He'd be killed and after three days he'd rise again. He's told them this before. Mark 9, 31 says the same thing. Or Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And it's interesting in the story, you know who got it more than his followers did? His enemies. Because do you remember, why did the Jewish leaders post a guard? It's not that they believed him, but they knew what he said and they took it as credible that even if he couldn't physically rise from the dead, maybe his supporters would remember and they'd come and try and steal the body. So Jesus' enemies understood more than his supporters did, at least as far as his claims went. So they took steps to make sure that couldn't happen. When I read, uh, just studying for this morning, when I was reading the harmonies and going through this, 
I thought that the story of the resurrection, I mean no disrespect when I say this, it reads a little bit to me like a comedy or a Greek farce. Are you with me? Think of this. Think of these elements. You've got mistaken identities. Uh, Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. The guys on the road to Emmaus, they see him, but they don't know who he is. Mistaken identities. You've got people running back and forth. There's kind of this frenetic action. So they go to the tomb, they run away from the tomb. They run back to the tomb, they leave the tomb. Uh, No one understands what's going on. And the characters appear comedic instead of distinguished witnesses. Does that make sense? Uh, It appears comedic to me, uh, like a farce, like a Greek comedy, uh, not a tragedy that the disciples still thought was happening as this was written. looks comedic. I think there's a reason for this, and it's this. At the end of the day, when man's at his worst... And Jesus' disciples, his followers, as well-intentioned as they are, they bring nothing to the plate of the resurrection story except their need and their ignorance. And in the face of human need, and our need especially related to the redemption from sin, it's God who accomplishes His will by His power. It's not us. Think about these elements of Jesus and His followers for just a second. During His ministry... Jesus' followers want Jesus to set up His earthly kingdom and reign from Jerusalem. But He's offering Himself as the Lamb of God instead. And again, just the difference between what God is actually up to, what He's doing, and how people want to help Him. They're not the same thing. Jesus' followers wanted Him to save His own life. If you remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about His death. Peter says, God forbid it. God's will was for Jesus to die on the cross. Peter, Jesus' friend, wants to stop him. Would that really be helping God's cause? Would that be God accomplishing His will? It wouldn't. Jesus rises physically from the grave and His disciples through these stories think He is a ghost. So in the Luke passage, He eats fish to show them, I'm real. You know, later, a week later, He'll have Thomas say, He'll say, put your hand in my side. You'll feel me. I'm real. I'm really here. And in the Luke passage Joe read, Jesus' followers again want him to stick around post-resurrection when Jesus is saying, guys, I'm here for a short while. I'm commissioning you as my messengers. You're going to go out to the world in my name. In other words, there's always this discrepancy between what God's will is, what he's determined to accomplish, and what his helpers, his disciples want to help him accomplish. We look back and we call Peter and John saints. But you know, they don't look very saintly in this story. I'd say they look a bit like you and me. And they're stumbling and they're well-intentioned, but they are entirely misguided. And God is working with the same kind of inept cast today that He was then. So this makes sense to me. I feel like I can get a hold of this story. The resurrection reminds us that God accomplishes His purpose His will by His power. You and I do not accomplish God's purposes. We get to be part of a process. We have minor, minor roles to play. But God accomplishes His will by His power. There's a rule at the Halpin House. This is the dad rule. 
No one else, no one else has this rule, but I have this rule, and it's the, called the, the don't help rule. Does anybody else, do any guys have this rule at home? Don't help. Don't help me. I can't tell you how many times I've said this. I'm entirely, I'm entirely serious. Do you know why? Do you, does this, do you know where I'm going with this? My daughters and my wife, God bless them, they love me. And so you know what they want to do? They want to help me. But you know what that typically means? They have no idea what helping dad would really be. So when they try to help, it's counterproductive. So my rule at our house is do not help me. If I need help, I'll ask. Don't help. Well, there's a sense in which in redemption, God has a don't help me rule. God has a don't help rule. And it's because we are inept. We are misguided. Sometimes, not always, we're well-intentioned. But we get it wrong. And what we bring to the plate related to God's will is no help at all. God says, basically, don't help. There's a great psalm, Psalm 46. Um, it's really, really graphic. And if you guys remember it, the sons of Korah wrote it and they say, uh, if the earth should shake and the mountains should be cast into the sea, that is, if you picture that in your own mind, whatever that looks like, if it's physical or if it's emotional or otherwise, your whole world is being shaken up. And you don't know what to do. God says this, Cease, or stop, or some versions say, be still, verse 10. And know, or understand, or comprehend, or come to grips with the fact that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It looks like all the world around me has fallen apart. The disciples certainly fell that. Their world had fallen apart. Their mountains had fallen into the heart of the sea. And they're wondering, what do I do? And God said to them, just like He said in Psalm 46, Stop! Cease! Be still! Understand this. Comprehend this. I am God. When He says, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth, God is saying, my will will be accomplished by my power. My plan is going to be accomplished. No matter what's going on around you now, don't give up, don't lose heart. My plan is still going to be accomplished because of my power. So the psalmist then says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God's the place I find my strength. I don't bring my strength to the plate. A couple of New Testament passages, one of which specifically mentions the resurrection. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 said this, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He then says, Therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, etc. God essentially says, though, here's the victory. Now you can do some things for me. But I've, I've won the victory. There's no work for you to do other than simply obeying me. And as we'll see, primarily that means being messengers. It doesn't mean we go out working hard. This says toil, generally the thought of steadfast labor over time. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes the point, you have victory in life and over death and over sin because it's been given to you. Not because you did anything to get it. 
Your labor is zero. God has given you something Christ has purchased. You don't work for it. You can't work for it. It's a victory God has accomplished in Christ, and He gives it to you. And that's why you can go out and serve God confidently, because He's already assured the victory. Colossians 2 makes a similar point, maybe more graphically. Paul says this, when you were dead in your, transgress- in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, uh, when you were dead, Paul says, uh, how much power does a corpse have? If you're looking at a body, how much power does that body have? No soul, no spirit. has no power. It can't do anything for itself, much less anyone else. Well, Paul says, when you were dead... When you were a corpse lying stiff on the ground, when you had absolutely no power, when there was no thought that you had power to accomplish anything, this is what God did. He made you alive together with Him. He forgave you your transgressions. He canceled out the certificate of your debt. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities. That would mean demonic agencies that work against you and me in this life. And He triumphed over them. There's no confusion here about who's doing the work. God accomplishes His will by His power and then He gives you and me the benefit of it. But there's no thought that we're bringing anything to the plate except our need. God accomplishes His work by His power. Sometimes you ask, what does that look like? Uh, if your marriage is in trouble, if it's not what it should be, stop, cease, be still, and remember that God is God. You can pray to God about that marriage. You can be the best spouse you know how to be, and then you can commit your marriage to the power of Christ, the resurrected Christ, the one who conquered sin and death. If your children are not who or what you hoped they would be. Stop. Cease. Be still. You know, sometimes we think we have power over other people. You know what the truth is? We have no power over another person. There's not one person in this room who can change another person's heart. You can't do it. I don't care how influential you think you are. You can't. You cannot change a heart. Only God can change hearts. Sometimes, when I'm thinking of family situations here, spouses, parents, and children, I think I have some leverage over someone else that I can actually change them. Well, the truth is I don't. I just bang my head against a wall. If you are in one of these situations, stop. Don't figure out the next rant or the next accusation or the next, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Stop like Psalm 46. Tell God you don't have power. He knows that already. He's waiting for you to know that, for me to know that. Pray about it. Give those children to God. Give the situation to God. Entrust it to the power of Christ and go on. If you aren't what you'd hope to be, and many of us, you know, we think we're going to be a certain kind of person or life will go a certain way, and you know, typically it doesn't. I mean, who knows what tomorrow, much less next year, brings, you know. I turned up middle-aged and insignificant. What's with that? 
If you look at your life and you say, I'm not what I thought I'd be. Don't turn over a new leaf. Don't tell yourself you're going to work harder, you're going to be better. Just stop. Confess those disappointments to God. Tell Him, I thought I'd be something and I'm not. Or I, I thought life would look like this. I thought I'd be a different person, a better person, whatever. Confess that to the Lord and entrust your life to the power of Christ. The power of the resurrection. You know, there's a flip side to this too. You know, if you hear, just hear this stuff and you sit here and you say, gosh, I feel bad because none of it applies to me. My life's pretty good. My marriage is great. My kids are super. Or I have no kids and I'm thrilled about that. <laughs> or business is good. Life is good. I'm healthy. If that's where you're sitting this morning, let me just say to you the same thing. Stop. Don't pat yourself on the back. And don't congratulate yourself. And don't inflate yourself in your mind to think you've brought these things about by your power and the exercise of your will because you haven't. All good gifts come from above, from the Father of lights. If you've got something good in this life, it was given to you. If you've got intellect, money, influence, power, they're all gifts from God. Paul says if you're going to boast, boast in this that you know and understand Christ, that you know and understand God. Right back to Psalm 46. So if you're blessed, stop. Don't congratulate yourself. Stop and humbly thank God for the ways He's blessed in your life. That God's will has been accomplished by God's power in your life and you're enjoying that and you're thanking God humbly for those blessings. We are often like Mary Magdalene. You know, she doesn't know Jesus has risen from the dead yet and she wants, she loves him. And I love the picture of, uh, in these gospel stories of Mary at Jesus' feet. You know, she's just thrilled to see him again. You know, but before she knows he's back, she wants to know where his body is because she's going to take it and do something with it. You know, she's well-intentioned. And, and oftentimes that's what we're like. Uh, God, I want to be helpful. I, I, what can I do? Uh, well-intentioned, but typically misguided. Jesus presents himself to Mary as the risen Lord. He accepts her worship. He does commission her. He does give her something to do. But it's only to be a messenger. It's to go and tell the disciples, which she does. And that's why Peter and John run to the tomb. She's a messenger. That's all Jesus asked her to do. You, you, I've got a message for you, Mary. Go and tell the guys I'm coming back. God does not need your help or mine to rise from the dead. And that comedic farcical view of Jesus' supporters helping him post-resurrection reminds us we don't bring anything to this table but our needs. Jesus didn't need our help to rise from the dead. And you know what today? Jesus doesn't need your help to save the world. He doesn't need my help to save the world. He doesn't need our help to accomplish his will. God is accomplishing his will by his power today just as he did that first resurrection morning. Jesus commissions us as he did Mary with work. doesn't mean that we don't have any responsibility, but we're not to be misguided to think that by our effort, by our coercion, by our intellect, we're going to get God's work done. We are commissioned primarily as messengers. As messengers. And Jesus told the disciples, 
you'll be my witnesses. It's the same thought. That we are going to be those who bear witness to the person and the reality of the risen Christ. That's our call to work. See, and the beauty of that is you're successful if you share the message. Did you know you don't have to get anyone saved? If you share the gospel, if you communicate the message, you've been successful. If as a parent you communicate the truth of the gospel with your children, you've, you've been the messenger, you've fulfilled your commission. You can pray for your kids. I'm not minimizing the ways God wants to use us, but I just think typically we get a misguided notion of what we actually can do related to God. In the kingdom of God, we have no power other than the Spirit of God operating in us. And we're not talking about that much this morning, but it's the Spirit given after the resurrection that empowers us even as witnesses, even as messengers. We don't even get that right apart from God's interaction in us. God does the same thing for us today that He did for Mary. He presents us in Christ as the object for our worship. And He does commission us, but it's as messengers. If you're not sure uh, you're a Christian this morning, uh, I had a guy knock at my door a week or two ago. I thought, oh no, great. And he was in a trench coat. I thought, oh great. You know, I'm dealing with a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or something, and I'm, and I'm in a hurry. And uh, he actually was selling uh, gutter coverings. And uh, this does tie in. Uh, selling gutter coverings. And a nice guy, and I had a brief conversation with him. And at the end of the day, this is the deal. He's a pastor of a small church. And he goes door to door on this sales stuff. And he told me, and you know, uh, in our culture, this is it's kind of a throwback, and many people don't want it. But he goes door to door, whether he's selling or not. And he was so, uh, he was so genuine. I was just struck. He was so genuine. And he said, we love people and we want to see them in heaven. We love people and we want them to be in heaven. You know, if you're not sure Christ is your Savior, I love that line. We love people and we want to see them in heaven. Can you imagine, uh, Jesus died for our sins so we didn't have to bear that penalty forever. And basically that means we get to go to heaven. We get to be where things are happening. We get to be in the place where there's life and joy forevermore. It'll be the best place in the world, in the universe. No one would really want to be anyplace else. That's what the resurrection is about. If you're not sure you're a Christian, trusting Christ means you get to be with Him forever. It means you don't bear the penalty of your sins. If you've already trusted Christ on this Resurrection Sunday, let me just encourage you to do this, making it personal. Thank God that He accomplished the resurrection, His will, by His power. And then whatever the issues are you're bearing in your life today, stop. Thank God that He's still accomplishing His will by His power in the world today. And you just give Him those things that concern you. You're not going to work at them. You'll be his messenger. You'll be faithful in all the ways you know to be faithful. But you're entrusting yourself in the things that concern you to the power of the resurrected Christ.
Lord Jesus, it's easy to read Bible stories sometimes and yet make no application to our own life. Uh, It's easy on an Easter, a resurrection morning, to read passages that talk about something that happened 2,000 years ago and yet not really feel the impact of it for ourselves. Lord, I thank you that you're still in the world today, saving us from our sin, leading and guiding us, being our shepherd. That, Lord, the, the, the very brief, very small taste we get of you in heaven in this life on this earth is just the minutest promise of what's to come. Lord, thanks that you are accomplishing all your goodwill and you will accomplish the things that concern us. Lord Jesus, help us to gain the benefit of knowing you, to live this life as those who know you, who know you as the infinite God, the one who conquered sin and death and who now does all things well. Help us to faithfully share the message of Christ with those around us, Father. And help us to cease our striving and remember that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.